Thank you all for coming this evening. I want to thank our virtual audience for joining us. So right as we head towards the Thanksgiving weekend and the first rain that Arizona has seen since I think last May, I'm happy to say that we have Matt Coyle down at the far end and Tim Malini next to me. And Patrick is working his way down there to talk to Matt. And we're very, very pleased to have them both here, longtime friends of the store. Uh, Matt, this is your 10th book, if I recall right. Yeah, and I've been here for every book. You it's have. an honor, always. I know, um, and we're very appreciative that you do that. And Tim, you had, you've had kind of a bit of a checker career due to a medical incident <laughs> beyond your control. But um, which this number? This is number six. This number is number six, six, yeah. Right. And Hanging the Devil um, is the book we're here to talk about. So what do you think, Patrick? Should should you want to kick off and I'll chime in? I certainly can. Okay. You can... Uh, yeah, well, it's great to uh, to see you always, Matt. And uh, it's funny, today I was looking uh, online um, just to see if there were any interviews about your new book that I could I could look at. And uh, I was happy to see like five that we've done together. You know, there were like, like several virtual ones. And, and uh, Hi, come and join us. We'd be, be happy to have you. Um, yeah, so it's been such a great, a great, uh, you know, association over the years. And it's been great. You know, and, um, you know, as the title of the new book suggests, Odyssey's End, this is a, uh, we won't spoil what actually happens. So uh, I don't want to go into that too much, but boy, you sure put uh, Rick Cahill through the ringer. <laughs> um, tell us a little bit about what's going on with him as this book starts. I mean, he has the CTE, which is kind of, you know, ramping up maybe, um, fighting to control it. He's had some incredible Hulk moments in the previous book. Um, tell us a little bit about about what he's facing. Thanks. Uh, yeah, you know, he, I, uh, I, he was pre CTE is some may know it's a pro football disease, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, and um, it's not. There's no definitive diagnosis until after death. And every football player they've cut open and looked for it, they've had it. Um, so when I decided to give that to him or be pre-diagnosed with it, I couldn't just pull it pull it away in the next book. You know, the miraculous. Um, there's no there's no cure for it at this point. So I had, as you mentioned, in the last book. There's um, there's a symptom that can uh, evolve from it, which is uh, this flash irrational rage, violent rage, and he went through that in Doom Legacy. And so I'm thinking, well, you know, you can't, you, you can't ignore the disease. I don't want to dwell on it too deeply with every book, but it has to be acknowledged. And my thought for this book was he's realizing that, you know, his time on, his time, his time on earth is, is numbered. No matter what happens to him, he's probably got a shortened lifespan. He's got a 20-month-old daughter. He's estranged. This is all in the first few pages, so there's no spoilers here. He's estranged from his family. His wife has taken his daughter up uh, to Santa Barbara, and he sees her every couple of weeks, the daughter. But he, he, he wants to get back together with the entire family. But if he can't, he at least wants to leave a safety net for his daughter when, when life knocks you down. And Rick knows better than anyone, life will knock you down. So he wants to leave her some sort of financial safety net. And so that's his driving force. And even he's trying to build something for her, even as he makes decisions in this book that 
may perhaps keep him from ever seeing her again. Um, but uh, I won't go too too deeply past that. But it, the, the one I wanted to, dealing with the CT, the, the thing I wanted to look at now was he's seeing his own mortality and he's trying to deal with that. So you're 10 books in, and yes. in terms of, I, I agree, you've absolutely put him through the ringer. How far ahead were you thinking about, okay, this is going to happen here, and then this is going to turn a little dark, and I'm going to do this? Because uh, to your point, once once you went there, you, you've just got to follow that path, right? Right. I was thinking about two pages ahead. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't, I don't, uh, I never started with a big uh, character arc or um or a story arc, but of course I knew when I made this decision that it was, you know, that I couldn't turn back. But the whole, I had two rules. One of them was when I first started writing many years ago was that everything had to matter for Rick. He couldn't uh, escape his bad decisions. He, he would get, he had emotional scars. He's got plenty of those, but also all the, the violence of his life, he could not escape a, a repercussions of it. And when, uh, after all these years of writing, I thought, well, Hell, he's probably got CTE. And um, I wasn't thinking that far ahead, like, what does this mean for the series? But, um, yeah, I knew that I knew once I crossed that path that there was no going back. That's fantastic. Yeah. And um, just to kind of a brief description of the plot, what, you know, his old kind of kind of nemesis, I guess you could say, or, you know, someone that he has a complicated relationship with this guy, Peter Stone. He's also dealing with uh, the ravages of age in, in his own way. And um, uh, tell us a little bit about the basic plot of the book. Sure. Yeah, as I mentioned that, his, he's, Rick is thinking, how can I leave something behind for my daughter? And Peter Stone, Peter Stone tried to kill him once, saved his life a couple times. Um, they, he, it's not a happy friendship. It's not even a friendship. And Stone is actually in witness protection as far as Rick knows. And again, this isn't really spoilers. It's very early in the book. Um, so a knock on the door, there's Stone, and he offers Rick $50,000 to find someone. And so Rick doesn't trust Stone. He knows he's dangerous. And with him, he brings all sorts of things. But he can't turn down that opportunity to, this is, you know, this is almost, you know, the dream come true, but it's really a nightmare. Um, and he, Stone has his own motive. He has, it, it, well, Rick has, yes, definitely Rick does. And Stone has multiple motivations that he won't really cop to initially. But, um, yeah, so Rick can't, he's, it's the old classic. He makes him an offer he can't refuse. He can't, he can't refuse $50,000, which would be a nice first layer of that, uh, safety net. <clears throat> Now, um, you know, as always, San Diego is front and center in the book. And in this, in this book, La Jolla, mainly, um, you know, it, it's funny. We've been, it seems like the L.A. crime novel in the last, I don't know, five or six years has gone through. It reflects the city, which is morphing and changing in interesting ways, you know. And there's all this, this new crop of writers who are uh, sort of exploring that. Um, I, I imagine San Diego's undergoing a similar transformation. I know biotech's huge there. Uh, how is San Diego changing? Oh. It's, it is, there's, there's biotech, there's, it's, um, ironically, 
when the Padre has got a new stadium, and I think it's been 20 years now to, to me, which is amazing. That was a, a blighted area in San Diego, and it has really um, re-energized re it. Um, but there's still, you know, there's there's homeless people uh, down San Diego. You've got this new vibrant area, and then a couple blocks away, you've got people and you know really living on the streets and true needs. So there's that dichotomy, just like in LA, and it's it, that it, that has actually grown significantly over the years. Um, biotech is still huge. Um, and I got to say, the traffic is almost as bad as L.A. now. Um, when I go to L.A., the worst part of the drive is when I hit um, going south, when I hit just below um, Camp Pendleton to Del Mar. Um, it's a tough life. But, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a growing, uh, um, vibrant city. But it's also, you know, it was called at one point Enron by, Enron by the Sea. Many years ago, it's, there's there's real corruption and there's um, an inability to really get much done at all. You would think you were living in Chicago with the way the roads are. You know, we we get sun in San Diego, and you can't avoid the potholes wherever you're driving. You know, and the city can't afford to pay for them, or they, that's not one of their um, main goals. But it's a bit, you know, it. it we tend to think of it as kind of this smaller, quaint place, but it's the eighth largest city in the in the country, and it's definitely got those um, big city problems. It's completely different than it was like ten years ago. Yeah, you know, and and I think one of the things that's so cool about crime fiction is how much the place is always a character, right? Always part yeah. of the texture and the mood, and you always see it from that. What's the underbelly look like? Yeah, and that's certainly true in your books. Thanks. Yeah, I always think of um, because a lot of you mentioned La Jolla. I mean, La Jolla is kind of an elite place, and it's a beautiful place, and it, it's people have vacation homes there. But when I'm writing about the, as mentioned, the dark underbelly, I always think of um, Blue Velvet when you got the Beatles teaming under the grass, and that I think I think it's an early scene, at least not maybe not the opening scene, but that's what I, I'm trying to convey. Maybe that uh, that darkness underneath. Um. Uh, one, you know, often your books will explore some interesting sort of uh, subject that requires you to do some research. And and in this book, part of you know one of them is cryptocurrency and what's going on in cryptocurrency. Um, did you go down a rabbit hole researching that? Yeah, I definitely, I definitely went down a rabbit hole. And, and with with all research, you know, you try to get more than you need, but you you definitely don't want to data dump on your readers and bore the hell out of them. So you can spend days and days trying to find that one little paragraph where you give them a sense of, of what you're trying to convey, but, you know, not overloading them. Yeah, and I don't, I still don't know. It's very, <laughs> I don't understand how it works. I did, uh, a, a fan of mine, uh, a wonderful woman who's a lawyer, high-powered lawyer up in the Bay Area, and I put something out on Facebook for like, hey, I need help with cryptocurrency. I'm doing research for a book. And someone in her office knows all this stuff. And it, and it's funny. I don't know if this happens to you, Tim, but sometimes when you, because I don't, I start writing. I need to write because I'll just be stuck if I don't. So I, the research comes when it comes. Sometimes it's in a second draft, what have you, or later. And sometimes I find like, wow, that was a hell of a guess. I don't know if that happens to you, but I'm always amazed by that. My, my first couple of books, I just made 
stuff up because I needed to keep writing. I needed a story. It turns out it was true. So Isn't I'm like, great? wait, am I actually predicting the future? Am I should I be writing about world <laughs> world peace or something? I should be writing about crime. And exactly, it falls into place. Or I'd get far enough and say, okay, I got to go deep on this. And there's like a placeholder, and you come back to it later. Yeah, exactly. And then you can get lost in the rabbit hole. And to your yeah. point, you have to strip it back to make sure that that's not a dense part of the book, but it's just right. texture. Uh, but yeah, sometimes your guesses, it, somehow it makes sense because the rest of the foundational stuff was right. And, and that's always a nice surprise. Yeah. And I, I, that did happen to me in this book. But also the great thing about when you talk to an expert or in, in the field is that sometimes you will get that little nugget that'll give you a little bit of the twist in the book that you never anticipated. And that happened with this book too. But uh, I learned as much as I could. I learned more than I needed to learn. But now, you know, I wrote the book a year ago and, and um, I'm not investing in cryptocurrency if anybody's wondering. Yeah. Don't follow me. Barbara, do you want? Very wise. No, I was just thinking about my many years in San Diego. And see, I think of San Diego in terms of it's a naval base. You know, it's um, where the SEALs train. There's, you know, a huge amount of stuff at Coronado Island. Um, one of the most beautiful libraries ever is the library on Coronado I think of the zoo, I think of the wild animal park, you know, the whole bit. So my version of San Diego is not really a crime-based version. It's more like a tourist-based exactly. version. Um, it's It's got a beautiful location. And yet, when you drive there across Interstate 5 from Phoenix, mm. there's a very interesting range of mountains not far east of San Diego. And then you wind up, you know, in a coastal city. So there's a lot Um a lot of transition. I mean, there are many people from Phoenix, they call themselves Zonies, Zonies, who go to San Diego to, you know, explore the beach and get away from the heat in the summer and the whole bit. So San Diego has a beautiful climate. Absolutely. And, and I'm glad you mentioned the mountains because, and, 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 and L.A. is much the same way. You've got, I used to go camping uh, in Mount Laguna, which from where I live, and I live probably... 10 minutes from the coast it's about a 45 minute drive and you can go up to a 6,000 foot mountain and get very cold at night yeah and it's actually fairly deserted territory in the mountains yeah you know so it feels almost like wilderness as you're coming coming across so the other thing about matt's books that um i think we should mention is that he has been nominated and won a whole bunch of awards from the left coast crime conference and um, so obviously you have a serious readership in, in the West. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm thankful for my readers. Uh, yeah, I've got, uh, it's not the hugest readership, but it's a, a really dedicated base. And I'm always kind of amazed when, um, you know, when I first started doing this 20 years ago, it took me 10 years to get published. I thought, wouldn't it be neat if, because if, I'm a huge reader. I mean, I went, I'm waiting for my favorite author stuff to come out. You know, one's coming out. So I thought, wouldn't it be neat for that to be able to have that? Someone that someone you might actually be their favorite writer. And to um, to experience that is really cool. It, it's really cool. And sometimes I think that, you know, we're always doing the next thing. We don't um, kind of uh, smell the roses a little bit. And I try to do this because this is called Odyssey's End. I won't say anything beyond that. But I, I've tried to smell the roses a little bit more well, on this but one. But, Matt, when you set up a character to have a fatal disease, you know, <laughs> at some point, you do. We had a really interesting discussion with Michael Connolly last week. And in the... Mm. Last book, not not Resurrection Walk, but the one before, at the end of it, Harry Bosch informs us that he, in fact, has cancer. And Mike revealed to us this time around 
that that was going to be his last book. He decided that, you know, he was done. And so Harry was going to fade away, you know, from cancer and we could all cry. And then then he realized um, that he didn't really want to quit. And so what to do? So he enrolled Harry as an employee of his half-brother, Mickey Haller, the Lincoln lawyer, in order to give Harry health insurance so he could enter an experimental cancer treatment program at UCLA, which I thought was really pretty clever. So that's why Resurrection Walk is a book where Harry is driving the Lincoln for Mickey, but they're actually working the case together. Um, So sometimes you can pull back from the brink, you know, um, but I'm not sure that with the disease that you have given uh, your character that you can really do that. Well... The average lifespan for someone with CT as of right now is 53. Uh, I'll just say Rick's about 43 in this book. That's all I'll say. You wanted to comment, Jim? No, I was just saying that's the Reichenbach Falls dilemma, right? Is is can you pull back from you know is the character going to go or they're not going to go and and yeah, I'm sure that's something you were you were you were thinking about. Yeah, I was really thinking of this book. If it, if it is the end for Rick, um, can I do him justice? And if it's, even if it's not, um, will the book, you know, continuing his, his, his travels, will it do it justice? So I'm, that's why I'm always thinking. And, and if it is the end, I think I, I, I'm happy with where it would end with this particular book. Well, you don't have to commit yourself at the moment. You know, one of the great things about writing is you can always change your mind. It's fiction, right? So there we go. So let's talk about Cape and Sally. So um, Cape Weathers and his sidekick Sally are two of my very favorite characters. I was fortunate enough to edit most of Tim's books, not this current one. Well, sort of the current one. Um, And one of the things that I found really challenging was that in order to appreciate the fight scenes and so forth, you really had to envision them. And, you know, that's hard for me because I don't actually do that. Um, and Annette, who, you know, used to work, she could actually see the fight scene. So one of the questions I have for you is, you know, are you a visual writer? Do you see what's going on and then you write it down? I think, as Matt said, I just need to start writing. And I absolutely visualize the scene. So, as you know, a lot of the books are carried very much by the... Uh, the dialogue and the banter between the characters, but to set everything in motion, you have to have these pivotal action scenes. And then because of Sally's background, because she was raised by the triads, orphan and, and her whole approach to uh, conflict, uh, I had to have these elaborate fight scenes and often they involve multiple people coming and converging in a single place. So I will have that in my head and I'll write to a point then I stop and then I draw pictures. I sketch it out almost like a, like you're doing a stage play or blocking for, for you're blocking like, where's the camera, right? Because I write third person close in. So you're in the head of the character from whose point of view that, that, um, chapter is being written. So it feels more like first person. Uh, but in a scene like that, where you have multiple people uh, in, in combat or in conflict, in, in this book, there's, um, 
This book deals with uh, art theft and, and smuggling and forgeries and uh, museum heists. And there's, there's one fight scene in a museum where I've been in the museum, but I actually was able to find the floor plans. So I literally was drawing out, okay, Sally's here, Cape's here, you know, the bad guy's here, this person's over here, that's a corpse, that's a statue, and just draw that and draw the lines converging. And then you kind of have to write that scene. And then as Matt knows, then you strip back the, the words to get it as spare as possible so that the, the reader feels the movement of it. Um, just like in a, in a, in a, in a film, you, you pull back enough so that the movement takes you and it's not overly described. It's, it's just sort of happening at a visceral level. And, and I love doing that. But so you have an astonishing opening scene in Hanging the Devil in which the art thieves are arriving at the museum by helicopter, but they screw up. Um, and so um, things go horribly they, wrong. Well, yes, things do go horribly wrong on several counts. But you know, it's it's a scene where, as a reader, you can really see it happening, and you keep waiting. Do you remember in the first Daniel Craig um, James Bond movie how there was that incredible action scene, and you know you were just worn out with it, and he was doing all this other stuff, and finally it stopped, and you thought, great, and then there was a. Boom, all over again. And that's kind of the way I've never forgotten that. You know, it's just, it was one of those moments in cinema where you think your heart skips. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, your you heart know, skips. You skips just beat, thought yeah. it was just so effective. And that's the way I felt in reading the opening scene of Hanging the Devil. I keep thinking, you know, we're there, you know, and then no, there's another bang. So Th that for me, I thought about that for months, that scene. And um, I was, I was, making all these notes, I was doing all this research, and I had started different parts of the book, but that scene I just wanted to get right, I must have rewritten it about 40 times. And uh, what was particularly challenging about that scene is there's a pivotal character in this book who's been introduced in the worlds of, of Cave and Sally, which is an 11-year-old girl, um, who uh, at the beginning of the book, you're seeing that scene with the helicopter uh, as it tries to land on the, on the museum uh, roof, uh, through her eyes. So the book is written from the point of view of an 11-year-old girl. So um, she's touring the museum, and then this helicopter comes across the square right across from City Hall, and things go a bit sideways, uh, as, as they tend to do in my books. Yeah, yeah and, and the thing is that the, basically the thieves are kind of grandstanding. They didn't really have to arrive by helicopter. So hubris did the men at the very beginning. They screwed up. I could use a more effective word. Screwed up the helicopter landing and um, crashed in through through glass. And then they don't really want any witnesses to what happened. And unfortunately, the 11-year-old girl who was there with her uncle, she's a refugee from China. She's in a, is it Taiwan? China. 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 It yeah. is China, right. Um, shouldn't even be in the country, but her father has managed to, to get her out to her uncle. And there she is, um, you know, with this awful things happening all around her. And the only thing that she has been taught is that, you know, in situations like that, you run. Exactly. So she runs out of the museum. It's the middle of the night and runs into uh, the streets of San Francisco. And um, again, thinking about San Francisco these days and what the city's like, and she runs... Uh, into the heart of Chinatown, which is where she runs into 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 Sally, uh, who's sort of the self-appointed guardian of Chinatown, and that sets the whole plot in motion. Uh, is is that opening scene, and uh, it was fun. I spent a lot of time in the museum, 
trying to get a sense of the layout uh, and uh, getting suspicious looks from the security guards <laughs> who are like, why is he looking at the cameras and the exits instead of the instead of the art and you know all of that. So uh, yeah, that was it was a fun way to open a book. And the motivation of the of the art thieves is a complex one. There's a woman named Grace Lee who wrote a book with a similar motivation that came out um, last year. So there's a whole thing going on about repatriating art and who does it really belong to. Um, and so museums have been forced in many cases to give back things from their collections uh, for a variety of reasons. So that is an, an element um, in the book, which I think, you know, is that, that part it's was a real life element. Absolutely. I mean, it's happening all around us, you know. This was based, this is loosely based on some actual crimes, some actual museum thefts. And I started looking into that and I was getting very interested in uh, forgeries, how they're done. Turns out that um, all you need is a complicit uh, uh, gallery owner and it ends up in a catalog and then it seems more legit. They look at the provenance a little less closely. Next thing you know, it ends up in a museum and everybody assumes it's real. So that was one trail I was going down. Then I was interested in, okay, how would you break into a museum? And there have been some famous museum robberies, you know, Isabella Gardner and things well, like that. I haven't figured out the Isabella Stewart Gardner. Exactly. And, you know, the great fear we all have who love art is that the paintings have been destroyed. Yeah. But, um, you know, we can hope that eventually they'll resurface. They were probably taken as some kind of capital for the mob rather than, you know, to sell to a collector or... Um, or to destroy them or whatever. They're used a lot by organized crime. Uh, right. Paintings are as collateral for, exactly. for major deals and things like that. And, they and now up, the crypto's falling apart. We may exactly. find even more, you, you see that. Even more art yeah. going that way. It wasn't Matt's fault, but that, that's no, where... Are you sure it wasn't your fault? No. But yeah, that's where the free ports and other areas to just how do you keep the art out of sight, but it's still something of a determined value in the right. market. And then even if that's not true, I know there was a big controversy about some Russian oligarch. Maybe his art yacht is still going and hasn't been confiscated yet. But anyway, he bought a Da Vinci, I think it is. It was Da Vinci, highest, he, highest price and ever. He's, yeah, and he's hung it on a wall in his yacht. And so instantly come all the questions about... How can you actually conserve a painting and you know if if it's floating around at sea? I mean, it's a terrible environment for a painting. And you know, so you have all these questions about responsible ownership and you know or or people who hide stuff away, or you have criminal gangs who use it as collateral or whatever. So the art market, I mean, Daniel Silva's made a career out of this, you know, and his last book, The Collector, is really good about some of the things that you write about in Hanging the Devil. This was a new territory for me, and I must say, the the art world, um, it, yeah, everything from uh, the the how it's used by organized crime to uh, how much global interconnection there is. To your point about the repatriation movement, uh, the the state sponsored uh, negotiations, even thefts associated with that. So this started as a, a more. All my books start in San Francisco in a in a more local crime. Something bad happens. And then you pull on that thread and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and becomes more of a global or international thriller. And in this case, finding those threads and the connections uh, was easy because the art world is that entangled and, and, and that complex. And it was a lot of fun to write about. So only Tim, actually only Tim would have an entirely different story trick about monkeys. Oh, yes. And I, there monkeys, is... there monkeys, should I use the polite word, onanism? But for those of you who don't know, these are these are 
basically monkeys who like to have sex with themselves on a level that is hardly even imaginable. The, when they're excited, macaques, this yeah. is what they do, right? There's um, So as I was going back and forth between uh, mainland China, Hong Kong, and San Francisco, there's parts of the book that take place in a, in a labor camp in, in Xinjiang, China. And um, uh, I was reading about, uh, uh, I was doing research, and it turns out that there have been some experiments with macaque monkeys where they splice human DNA into the, into the monkey's brain to see if they can make the monkey smarter. You can Google this, it's out there, and it's completely bizarre. And as Barbara knows, uh, in all of my books, there's some strange creature there in boxing the octopus there's I an octopus, the octopus. and i i wrote several chapters from the octopus's point of view which um which barbara encouraged me to do and it totally worked and i held out for the octopus to be on the cover i might tell you i had a That's real right. fight about that one that cover um one, one of my favorite covers is because yeah barbara uh, barbara fought for oscar the octopus and uh in this um they, I have uh, the macaques, and they play a role in this in this labor camp. And uh, it wasn't a stretch. At first, I was saying, "Okay, is this getting too weird?" And the more research I did, I thought, actually, they're playing around with stuff like this. And uh, one of the macaques becomes a character that, at first, is wholly unsympathetic and and has all the uh, animal habits of of his species. And then later on becomes quite a uh, interesting um, yes, companion you know, and sympathetic a, character. Yeah, yeah. He's a great character. So when he talks about labor camp, what they're really, it is a labor camp, but part of that is it becomes an art factory. And so there's a relationship there between the art factory and passing on forgeries. But what I also like is that, Tim, if you've been paying any attention to the news, you have known that booksellers in Hong Kong have been subject to all kinds of political um, pressure and many of them have been jailed. Publishers have been jailed and so forth and disappeared. So there's a wonderful character who was in fact a bookseller and the story of the bookseller and the monkey are really fabulous. And we're not going to tell them how it comes out, but I just want to tell you that I really love the bookseller and the monkey. Thank you and no spoilers, but that, that yeah, that, that was unexpected and that again was a storyline that just felt very authentic and it's okay why is this guy here and what did he do and what is his background and then where would you go with that and and what does that mean for the overall context of the book and his and his interaction with the other characters tied to the art world it just all felt like it came together uh and you could have a lot of fun with it but there was also a lot of um between the 11 year old girl this character there there was um there are bigger themes that started to emerge as I wrote the book. Yeah. Themes. And then we haven't mentioned that Sally and her ninja skills are in a very important part of all this. And um, for those of you who like Tori Eldridge's books, for example, about ninjas, um, this is a, a great book. One of the reasons I love Tim's books is they move so fast and you absolutely have no idea what you're going to get. But we always get there and it always makes sense. Um, so they've been they've just been enormous fun to edit and to read over the years. And thank you for all the Barbara believed in what I was doing before I knew what I was doing. So that's uh, no small thing. Um, and you had said to me, yeah, editor's role is to get the book that's in your head onto the page. So uh, that's um, very true. Yeah, love working with you. And sometimes I've had to say, Jim, what did you actually mean here? And he'll tell me. And then I say, well, you forgot to write it down, Tim. So let's put it on the page. It's back to being a visual writer. That's yeah, right. find the words. Find the words I will end. say that it, you cannot go wrong buying Boxing the Octopus and Hanging the Devil if you want really original, funny, fast paced, but also deeply serious themes involved. You can't go wrong with these two books together. 
It's been a real thank privilege, you. Tim. I've so much enjoyed That's it. That's how I feel. And it's always a privilege to be here at the store. So thank you. So, Patrick, anything yeah. you and Matt would like to add? Well, I think this gentleman would like to ask a question. You want to see how the sausage is made, huh? Well, um, what I do, it's the 10th book. It's it's first person, same character this in the series. So I have, and I kind of go by the seat of my pants quite a bit, but I have, um, I got a target out there. I got to find how to get there. I kind of got the end. I know who the bad guys are. And the major thing for me is what is the subplot that's going on in my protagonist, Rick Cahill's life? What's the major emotional trauma he's going through that taking a case will make more difficult and vice versa? So once I get those, I just kind of, um, and there's a few plot points that come up in my, in my head that I want to hit. But really, I, I, I just go, how can this affect Rick and actually... I'm always amazed when people say the book was well plotted or something, because for, for me, the plot comes from the action Rick, Rick takes. I've got this unreal world where I try to make as believable as possible, and, and Rick has certain characteristics that continuing readers understand, and he makes some bad decisions sometimes. So in all that, I, Rick will make a decision, and then for me, the plot comes from there, but I also have that... That has to make sense in the, if you're looking at it straight down, it has to make sense in the overall thing, overall um, through line of the story. But what I would say to you, if you got all these ideas and you don't know what to do with them, just, just sit down and write them. Let it go. Because I don't outline, my first draft is a mess. I, I cut 30,000 words sometimes from my first draft up my first read through. But I don't care because I know that sometimes, sometimes I'll spend a day writing something I know is not going to be in the book, but it gets to me where I need to go. So use those ideas and throw them all in there, and then you can always pull them out. But don't, don't stump yourself by, by, you know, I've got so much going on, I don't know which way to go. Just jump in. Go on, go on blind, whatever it takes, and you'll find your way. It's just, it's just every day using the muscle. About working with R.L. Stein. So R.L. Stein, everybody knows. I think he's sold hundreds of millions of books because you know Goosebumps and everything else. Yeah, I was in an anthology for young readers. Um, I got started actually by writing short stories. When I was first getting serious about writing, I wanted to work out um, how to be a writer and how to how to tell a story and how how to structure things. And and like Matt, I I do it by the seat of the pants where I'm I'm writing more organically and then in the books I'll stop at a certain point, do a, retro, a, a retroactive outline and, 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 you know, figure it out from there. And writing short stories for me was, was very instructive because you have to have a beginning, middle, and an end. And it helps the way you think about chapters. We actually have to write a novel. The chapter has to be there for a reason. It has to have movement. It has to have some structure. But you're writing from the point of view of the character about what, you know, you're telling yourself a story. What would they do next? And same thing with the short stories. So I was playing around with different voices, first person, third person, writing from different points of view in the short stories. And along the way, um, 
a couple of my stories got picked up for anthologies, collections with other authors. And uh, then I got asked if I would contribute to this. And I saw that uh, R.L. Stein was the editor. I was like, yes, yes, I would love to, please. Yes, that would be great. Uh, and that was the first time I tried to write for a younger um, audience, which, which frankly, I would, I would love to write a YA or a middle grade book uh, at some point if I could figure out the, the, the timing of it. Uh, so that was a really neat experience. And what was cool about that too was uh, when we did events, they would be, I did one where there were like nine of the authors that were in the anthology together with, with Earl Stein, who's an incredibly smart, incredibly gracious, uh, nice guy, uh, not as spooky as his books might suggest. And he's written adult fiction as well as, you know, uh, younger fiction. Uh, he's a, just a damn good writer, but it was interesting seeing the way they approached that, that audience and, and the different you know, tones of the writers there and all that. So that was a great experience. I would say for just, you're doing the right thing by being here, by going to events, by listening to writers talk. So you're, you're on the right track. You probably had a lot of people, honestly, I mean, doing that in the early stages and throughout, I go to events all the time. It, it is really going to help, you know, build the, 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 uh, story. Yes, man. crash out all the time <laughs> yeah i be, even though i don't outline i do know especially the more i write the story i know um what has to be done so there'll be times when i will um i know a lot of writers don't like to see i don't get writer's block i do i get blocked but since i knew what has to come later if i really stuck i try to power through it but if i really get stuck i'll just write scenes later in the book and then eventually It'll get it'll get the ball rolling, and I come back. But in terms of overall ideas for books, um, luckily I've got this character that I've learned more about with each book. And as I mentioned, and and you know now he's got chronic traumatic encephalopathy. So it's you know how can I put the the twist on how he's dealing with that? But yeah, there, um, I've been pretty fortunate about not being stuck on ideas for the next book. Um, and I think it's because I got a serious character, and um, I just. When I'm even if I am a little stuck, I just well give Rick a problem, throw him in the middle, and he'll lead the way. He'll find the way for you. Yeah, what's he going to do next, right? I mean, I I, I think it's funny. I I learned that from John Lasquois. Uh, he was talking about write the stuff that's already clear in your head, even if it's later in the book. I think sometimes when you first get started, there's a there's a pressure you put on yourself to say I have to write this in a straight line. But you think about a lot of stories that you love, whether it's movies or, or books, they're not often told in a linear fashion. And if you have a scene in your head that probably occurs a third of the way in the story, write that scene now. It's fine. Then you're going to find a path back to it. It doesn't have to be a, a linear process. And sometimes you get stuck on certain parts of it. Uh, and, and that's okay. Especially when you get older, you better write that scene now because you might forget it. <laughs> but I want to say, John, John Lesquois has one of the, gave one of the best set of advice that I'd ever heard. And I think it was before I was published. I just got my agent, and it was BoucherCon, San Francisco. And he said, and this is John Lesquois, who I'm a big fan of, and he says, you know, I, t I give myself permission to write the first, uh, to have the first chapter, first chapter, first um, draft be crap. He didn't say crap, but and I'm thinking, if John Lesquois can do that, I go, I can write crap. I can write. Those first drafts are always Just crap. get it out. Get it on the page. Exactly. Tess Garrison said that here um, Tuesday night, that her first drafts are terrible because she doesn't, she's telling herself the story. She hasn't plotted it out. And once she has the first draft done, then the whole book is really all about revisions, right. about rewriting it. So it doesn't matter how bad your first draft is. You just need to get to the end of the story. 
and then you can go back and fix it. Tess Garrison. There it is. Is she right? JT is the same way, the two of them. We had a really great discussion about it. But I do think that, um, you know, if you try to make it perfect as you go along, you're just going to wear yourself out. It's not. You're going to stymie yourself. Yeah. Yeah, no, they say that writing is editing, and absolutely. I think the it difference between writers who yeah. make it work and are successful and writers who don't make it are how good are you at self-editing and looking at what you've done and getting out of your own way and polishing yeah, it and everything by else. And then you've learned your characters, and you can exactly. go back and flesh them out, or you've seen where the plot turn went wrong, and you can go back and fix it, and, you know, all kinds of stuff. And editors do exist for the, you know, point of helping you. Tim and I have had one or two brisk discussions over time. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. It might be clear in your head. It might not be on the page, and, and it's always good to have a reader um, and, and have, a, you know, sounding board on what's working and what isn't. Another thing John said was, uh, to your point about how he felt um, that it stuck in my head, was he talked about genius mode and idiot mode. And, and, and by that, he meant when he's writing, trying to get the story out in his head, he's thinking, I'm a genius. I'm as good as Shakespeare. This is awesome. This could be great. And then when he looks at it the next day, he thinks, what, what idiot wrote this page? And he's looking at it almost as if somebody else wrote it just to shave stuff off. Because like when Matt talks about cutting out 30,000 words, you might cut entire chapters or just give the whole thing a haircut. And if you're too close to it emotionally, when you're editing yourself, you're not going to, oh, I like that. But think about if you've ever watched one of your favorite movies and looked at the deleted scenes, right, the behind the scenes, they were well acted, they were well written, they were well shot. Why did they cut them? Had to do with pacing. It didn't really move the story forward. It's the same thing when you're writing a book. How did you both kind of get your, <clears throat> your self-confidence as writers, or is that something that you still battle? Yeah, I still battle it, quite honestly. I, uh, each book, I think when I'm a little stuck, I think, well, this is the one, this is when they'll find out I'm a hack. Yeah, I'm a hack. Um, it's somehow it's miraculously come together so far, but really I'm just, I'm a hack. It's terrible. And then I'll read that first draft. I think, well, you know, you're not a hack and it, you're hacky, but not quite a hack. <laughs> and then with revision, it gets better and it gets better. But yeah, I deal with, I'm dealing with it right now as I'm writing something very different. Um, you deal with. At least I do a little bit of the insecurity, but um, and when you when you don't when you write the way I do, and it sounds like Tim as well, where there's not a great um, you know A B C in the writing of it, that that lends itself to being a little more insecure. And they're in the middle of probably books I don't know seven through maybe six through eight or something. I said, well, I'm going to do it differently. I mean, you're a professional writer; you get paid to do this. Have a little bit, be a little more organized, and it just. It blocks me, and I said, no, jump in, be messy, and you'll find your way, and I have every time. So, But that comes with, you know, it took me 10 years to get published. I, I've been writing one character for 20 years, so it doesn't happen. You know, you can get published earlier than that, but it's not that unusual. So you're learning the craft, you're learning your characters, and uh, it's that, uh, was it Malcolm Gladwell, whatever, the, a million of something? Yeah, 10,000 hours. Yeah. yeah. Um, How different would the books be if they were in third person? It's a good question. Um, as I'm writing third person now for the first time since high school or college, probably. Um, I, I think I like the first person because it, it's a cheat for me to really get inside the guy's head. And I mean, there's very there's close third person, which is done very well. I mean, I think about Michael Connolly and I'm thinking, wow, this is third person, but I, I feel like I know Bosch so well. Um, but I think they'd be a little different. There'd be a little more distance, perhaps. Um, I mean, I'm glad it was first person with Rick, but um, now we're exploring something else. 
Yeah, I mean, I made the decision to go third person. I originally was thinking first person because most of the short stories I'd written had been in first person. And then I realized that I wanted to move around and I wanted that Hitchcockian sense that you know something's happening and the protagonist may not. So I wanted to get inside the villain's head. I wanted to get inside, you know, the octopus's head and, and things like that and, and all that. But I wanted it really close in because I wanted the writing to have the attitude and the and the point of view and even the even the temperament of the person. Yeah, again, where's the, the cameras looking at the scene from one person's point of view? So uh, so how do you how do you write that? But you and, also have multiple narrators. Yeah. And, you know, so you can't really see that'd be much harder to do if they were all first person. Yeah. Or I think, if you kept switching between first and third, that can be unnerving. Exactly. I, and I think the classic, you know, procedural or, or classic P.I. novel is it, it works really well. For first person. These are. They have characters that fit that mold, but they're written more as thrillers and, yeah. and, and comedic thrillers in a way where things go continually sideways while the subject matter gets more and more serious. So that, for me, it was freeing to, to write in third person, actually, to open things up a little bit. Well, uh, congratulations on the ten, this 10-book ten journey you've taken uh, your character on. Uh, what are you working on now? Can you say? Yeah, I, I don't have a great log line for it yet, but... Um... It's there's a little bit of a rickishness in it. Um, More a spinoff? Uh, no, it's not a spinoff. Um, for Moira. Biz oh no, Mo um, I would love to do a Moira spinoff, but for for business purposes, you really kind of can't do that. Um, and I love Moira, and Moira was Moira was never going to be even the book. It was going to be Rick stuck in his head, morose, and I'm so glad that Moira came along. It was one scene I needed for my second book. Night Tremors, and they, her attitude, and they started talking. I thought, wow, I need her. And then she became a huge part of the, of the um, series. Um, it's a former cop who's, this is going to sound very familiar, has left the force, pushed off the force. There's only one person know what he did. His, his uh, friend and lieutenant, he's a, he's a homicide cop. Um, you got to retire because what you did cannot stand. And so he's got um, a little bit of a backstory of why he does what he did. And he's his father is a former cop also. He's ill. They need, uh, this guy's name's Tim, Tim Kincannon. They, he, they need his income to help pay for all of his father's bills. So he, he's not making it as a PI, so he gets the opportunity to work for a, a unknown extent, a period of time for the a public defender's office. And it's like, you know, he's because he's a true believer on this side of the blue line, and he works with a a female PD public defender who's on the other side of the blue line. So, I've got the dynamics, and plus his father's like, "What? You work with who? You crossed the line?" So the, all the the dynamics are set, and the story I, I'm still kind of um, knocking my head against the wall, bubbling my way through. But um, okay. I'm excited about interesting, the interesting material. Yeah, I think so. Um, but I'm on story idea three right now. So, Write faster, right? That's what we hear, right? Thanks, and Jim, Jim has positioned his characters to do a couple of interesting things at the end of this book, but we probably shouldn't talk about that. It's premature. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, just, I'll just say that some new characters introduced and it changes the, the dynamic between the characters and maybe where they'll go next. So, yeah, uh, so I'm exploring that and then also uh, working on standalone as well. So, yeah, just need to write faster. Did you have another question, sir? Are there, do you guys ever get inspired by like other authors? 
All the time, yeah. Do do we ever get inspired by other authors? Yeah, I mean, not just because I'm sitting next to him. Matt's unbelievable. Uh, I think people who get that sense of this is a real person, like I'm rooting for this character or I feel their pain, that that is what brings you back. Like Matt mentioned this before, but you know, for me, because reading was always such an important thing for me and it was always that escape, I thought, you know, if you can write a story because you're telling yourself a story and one other person reads that and that takes them you know, out of their head when they're sitting at home, you know, on a beach, on an airplane or whatever. And, and that's the way they escape or decompress. I thought that I'll be, I'll be over the moon and, and happy. And in the crime fiction community, the readers are incredibly loyal. So whether you're putting out, you know, a book a year, a book every few years, or, or you're jumping around a bit, if they like your characters, they'll come back to it and they want to know what happens next. So, uh, so I'm incredibly grateful for that. And, and, uh, for me, like Matt mentioned, I go to, I go to other writers events, um, I'll follow them on social. I buy their books and that absolutely inspires me. And what's cool about the crime fiction community is the people that if they, if they, you know, respect what you do and everybody, it's, it's very close knit, but everybody's doing something very different. It's, you never feel like, oh, these two writers are writing the same kind of books. They all feel fresh and they all feel different because the characters are so different. Yeah. Uh, Tim really hit on, uh, really hit on the community and inspired by other writers all the time, but I'm also helped by other writers. I mean, we mentioned Michael Connolly. Michael Connolly's blurred one of my books. Um, Robert Crace, who I'm a big fan of, has blurred my books. T. Jefferson Parker. Um, they become friends, and they everybody in the community helps some the next person down, next person up, what have you, sideways, whatever it is. It's an amazing, amazing community. A woman named Carolyn Wheat, who uh, is a mentor to me, would tell me this before I was published for it in ages. She goes, it's a great community, and it's true. And then once you're a part of it, you really feel responsible for, for lifting your hand sideways, down, up, whatever, to do the same. And it, it's a wonderful community, and we're, we're all competing for shelf space. It's amazing, but everybody helps each other, and it's, and it's really cool. But I'm always inspired by other writers. Sometimes I go like, yeah, how'd they do that? You have more wicks in your I do have Warwick's my new. I do have Warwick's my new book. Yeah, yeah. That was shout out to Reed and that was fun. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for coming this evening. I want to thank our audience, virtual audience, physical audience, for joining us, and our authors for another fabulous conversation. Um, so, thanks very much. Good night, everybody. Thank you, Barbara. Thank you, Poison yeah, Pen. It's really, really a pleasure. Thank you. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.